This podcast is from the Rand Corporation, a nonprofit institution that helps improve policy and decision making through research and analysis. For more Rand analysis, reports, and commentary on issues at the forefront of today's policy debate, visit www.rand.org. Good afternoon. I uh, wanted to remind you that today's briefing is being recorded. A video will be available online at www.rand.org, or you can listen to today's, today's discussion by subscribing to Rand's Congressional Briefing Series uh, podcast on iTunes. Uh, welcome to this RAND briefing. I'm Wynne Burkle, and I head up the RAND's uh, Corporation's Office of Congressional Relations here in Washington, D.C. Let me begin by thanking Congresswoman Laura Richardson of California's 37th District for sponsoring our room here today. We're very grateful for her help and that of her fantastic staff, especially Brian Bell. Let me tell you briefly about RAND before we begin. The RAND Corporation is a nonprofit institution that helps improve policy and decision making through research and analysis. RAND focuses on the issues that matter most, such as health, education, national security, international affairs, um, law, business, environment, and more. As a nonpartisan organization, RAND operates independent of political and commercial pressures. We serve the public interest by helping lawmakers reach informed decisions on the nation's most pressing challenges. RAND disseminates its findings and recommendations as widely as possible. It's part of our mission, and it's to benefit the public good. So there are more than 10,000 RAND reports and commentary available online free at www.rand.org. Um, today, you will hear from Lois Davis of RAND, uh, who will brief you on uh, RAND's work regarding the long-term effects of law enforcement that have resulted from the post-9-11 focus on counterterrorism and homeland security. Uh, Lois is a senior policy researcher at RAND. Um, her recent policy research is focused on the intersection of public safety and public health. She most recently completed a study for the National Institute of Justice on the impact of the 9-11 terrorist attacks uh, on U.S. police forces, counterterrorism, and homeland security capabilities, which she'll be briefing you about today. She is currently leading a comprehensive assessment of correctional education in the U.S. for incarcerated adults and juveniles. Uh, and a multi-year study on the public health implications of prisoner reentry in California. She recently le also led a commission study to examine disparities faced by African-American and Latino boys and men in California across specific uh, socioeconomic health safety and school readiness indicators. Past research that Lois has done includes near-term adjustments police forces have made in response to 9-11, use of uh, radio frequency identification RFID technology in correctional facilities, um, and the health status of returning prisoners. Uh, uh, Davis received her PhD in public health from the University of California, Los Angeles. Um, and with that, let me turn it over to Lois Davis. Thanks very much. Good afternoon. I appreciate you taking the time to come and hear our, about our study's findings. I'm going to report to you on a re report that we recently concluded it was done for the National Institute of Justice. And it builds upon research we had done previously, looking at following 9-11, what were law enforcement agencies' immediate response to that, that event, both large urban police departments as well as smaller police departments. We became interested in thinking about, now that we've had some distance from 9-11, what do we know then about how counterterrorism and homeland security has become an important part of law enforcement agencies, their roles and missions, but also what does that mean for them in terms of how they've approached this area. I wanted to point out the picture on the screen. This is the Houston Fusion Center. It's co-located with their Emergency Operations Center. 
What, what we know is that fusion centers are an important part of the story uh, when we think about law enforcement's role in counterterrorism and homeland security. And I'll be talking about that in a little bit more depth here. Certainly we know that after 9-11, we saw an expansion of homeland security counterterrorism role for law enforcement. Um, local police are really on the front lines when we think about this area. When a bomb goes off, when there's a suspicious package containing white powder, it's law enforcement that responds. To give you an example of how their role has expanded, I'm going to use the Miami Police Department, Miami-Dade Police Department as an example. Prior to 9-11, their focus was on, on drug interdiction, drug trafficking through the port and the international airport. Following 9-11, they saw that homeland security and counterterrorism came to the forefront of their mission. What they did was such things as expanding their presence greatly at the ports and at the international airports, having to coordinate with non-traditional partners. I'm showing here that federal funding, fiscal year 09, was 1.7 billion. In fiscal year 2010, it was 1.8 billion. About 24% of that was spent to improve law enforcement's counterterrorism and homeland security capabilities. Um, when we think about federal funding in this area, it goes to such organizations in addition to police as, as public health departments, um, hospitals, fire departments, et cetera. Um, but a key question, as I mentioned, was what do we know in terms of the long-term <coughs> impacts of, of um, this focus on counterterrorism and homeland security? And to what degree has this become, remained an important focus within these departments? One of the themes you're gonna hear is that increasingly Law enforcement's focus in this area has had to compete with other local priorities, such as routine crime fighting. The way we approached this question was we, we, in, we decided to do in-depth case studies of five large urban police departments. Um, I'm listing them here. These are departments that are in tier one cities, that is, cities that are thought to have a high risk of terrorism. We selected them because they're considered to be at the forefront of law enforcement's approach to counterterrorism and homeland security, but they also vary in the types of threats they face. For example, if you think about Houston, their threats is very much in terms of chemical incidents. They have a number of chemical companies, they have major oil refineries, so that's where a lot of their focus has been when they think about preparedness in this area. You may notice that we did not include New York City nor Washington, D.C. And the reason for that was that these cities are so unique in terms of the types of threats they face, the types of, of um, how us as a nation has approached funding and staffing these capabilities and localities. We felt that they would not be a good example that could, could um, have some generalization to other urban police departments. Um, we conducted in-depth interviews with these police per personnel. We included personnel that were in charge of or part of Homeland Security bureaus part of counterterrorism units, people that are, are in specialized response teams, folks that are on the administrative end, worrying about grants and budgets, thinking about what are the staffing needs of these, of these different entities. So we analyzed both qualitative interview data as well as other data that we obtained as part of this effort. I'm gonna use some acronyms in this briefing that I wanted to give you um, just a heads up about. When I say CT, respond, refers to counterterrorism, homeland security, HS, 
Leah's law enforcement agencies, and here are some others. I'll try to remember to um, remind you what they stand for as we go along. I'd like to give you just a preview of some of the key findings. Ten years after 9-11, we see that counterterrorism and homeland security have become an integral part of law enforcement's missions and roles. They've become an important part of policing. They, when we think about different evolution of policing, such as the trend in predictive policing, for example, you can think of counterterrorism as part of that evolution in terms of the type of analytic capabilities, the types of, of um, specialization that is occurring within law enforcement. We know that there's been a number of positive benefits. An important one that we heard was uh, improvements in the culture of cooperation. For many years, many of them cited the fact that for many years it was very difficult to be on the same page between law enforcement and the FBI, but hands down all of the interviews cited that they saw more and more a recognition that they both needed each other and were finding new ways to cooperate with another, one another. Fusion centers, which I'll talk about a little bit further, really have been important not only in terms of thinking about how do we more effectively gather, share information about terrorist threats, but also uh, crime in general. But a key message in all this is that there remains, particularly in this economic environment, a lot of pressure to focus more so these resources on routine crime. Congress has a role to play in a couple of fronts, thinking about how to modify Homeland Security grant funding in order to allow more flexibility for some of these um, cutting-edge departments that are at the forefront of Homeland Security in our, in our nation. There's a great need to help localities to think about how can they quantify better some of the opportunity costs associated with investing in this area. And there's also more and more going to be important a need to consider what will be the future of fusion centers. I'm going to begin by just giving you a flavor for how counterterrorism and homeland security requirements have evolved over time. And then I'll talk more specifically about fusion centers and then end thinking about what do we mean in terms of changes in funding, the emphasis on regionalization, what that has meant for law enforcement, and then also what about the opportunity costs associated with this investment. The photo in this, the top photo here is a picture of the Miami-Dade Fusion Center. The bottom photo is of a Quincy Police Dive Unit that is doing Homeland Security training. When people ask me, what do, what do we mean about law enforcement's roles in counterterrorism and homeland security, we're talking about a range of things. We're talking about the fact that they've either helped to create or are integral parts of administrating and managing fusion centers. So in other words, in sharing, sharing information, analyzing information related to terrorist threats in their locality, as well as uh, sharing information about crime in general. It's been an important push for them to extend the community policing model to also think about developing relationships with non-traditional partners, the interfaith community in Miami-Dade, reaching out more so to the Cuban community, to the Somali community in Los Angeles, to the Muslim community. We all are familiar with the fact that Homeland Security's funding has been important in allowing them to purchase specialized equipment to be able to respond to incidents involving CBRNE, chemical, biological, radiological, nuclear incidents, but also um, in training 
for these important missions. But the other thing that Homeland Security funding has enabled law enforcement to do is to create specialized response units and to train to respond to incidents um, that potentially have a terrorist element to them. These specialized response units in particular have benefited from Homeland Security funding. After 9-11, we saw a large increase in calls for services, um, a lot of white powder scares, that sort of thing. But in fact, those, um, the, the level of calls for services has gone down some, but it's remained fairly high. These, these specialized response units, um, they, they train to respond to any potential terrorist incident, whether it be at the port, whether it be a special event like a political convention, or at the Olympics. These departments also have increased their security presence at such places as ports, major transportation arteries, international airports. For example, Miami-Dade Police Department went from having pre-9-11 two police officers assigned to the international airport to now having 40 officers assigned. An important um, part of Homeland Security, an initiative that has been a very critical um, step forward, has been the development and implementation of the National Incident Management System, NIMS. NIMS is intended to provide a standard command and control structure to be used by all emergency responders, particularly in large-scale incidents involving multiple agencies, multiple disciplines. But also, importantly for law enforcement, in order to be, to be eligible for federal funding, they also need to be NIMS compliant. That is, they need to be certified in terms of the entire department being trained on, on using this National Incident Management System as well as, as, as demonstrating their capabilities in this area. So I just gave you a flavor of the different types of roles that law enforcement has when we think about homeland security and counterterrorism. It comes with some challenges, and I'd like to talk a little bit about those. When we think about federal funding from Homeland Security, it's been an important component of funding for law enforcement, but an important restriction has been that that funding cannot be used to hire police personnel who will be responsible for staffing these positions or, or undertaking um, counterterrorism Homeland Security functions. What this has meant is that law enforcement, the way that they staff these positions is they shift police personnel internally within a department. They shift them from other units. They either take them from patrol units or spe other specialized units such as a gang unit, for example, or a, a white-collar crime unit. And if we look at kind of the current environment that particularly these large urban police departments are operating on within, you find that they're dealing with such things as large attrition rates due to a bubble of retirements, retirements related to the COPS program when, they, when it allowed departments to hire a number of police personnel and they're now filling that bubble has now come to the end where you now have a lot of those folks retiring. Yet they're in a situation where they, they're, the current local economic environment is such that they can't hire new police personnel to replace even those that they're leave, losing through attrition. So it's really a game of how do we um, shift resources internally in order to maintain these capabilities. One commander I thought expressed it very well. He said, I love Homeland Security grants. 
our department has done well in terms of being able to purchase specialized equipment and to do the training that we needed. But I would give back all of my toys to be able to have people. We need people to operate. You, you probably are aware that one of the trends in law enforcement now is more and more towards specialization when we think about Again, such trends as predictive policing, but this is especially true in this area. This is an area where it takes a significant investment for individual officers to become, to develop the expertise, to develop the knowledge of the, the local landscape in terms of the intelligence landscape, to develop the contacts they need to be effective. Typically, what we see is that mid-career officers tend to self-select into these positions. Um, it can take an individual up to two years to really become, to develop that expertise to become and context to be very effective in those positions. Yet, in law enforcement, there is no specific career track for counterterrorism or homeland security emphasis. Law enforcement, similar to the military, in order to keep advancing in your career, you must keep changing your job every two, three years. And so what happens is that you have these significant investments um, in developing this expertise only to have that individual rotate out into another position. To give you a flavor of what this means, one commander commented that within his department they had invested $500,000 in training of one officer in particular who was subsequently promoting out of the counterterrorism unit. I mentioned the National Incident Management System, NIMS. This is a Hands down, all of the police that we interviewed felt that NIMS was a very important advance. They were able to cite specific examples of how it had helped them to more effectively manage large-scale incidents when multiple agencies were involved. But also, to be NIMS compliant is a significant investment. It's not about training, for example, officers within the counterterrorism unit or a specialized response unit. The entire department, sworn officers, must be trained on the use of the National Incident Management System. In addition, those officers that are going to be leading specialized units, they get additional training. What this means for a large department is that it can take you up to two to three years to train the entire department and to be, in order to become certified and compliant with NIMS. Federal funding is dependent on you being de demonstrating that you have met these requirements. It also means that NIMS has to be squeezed in with other routine law enforcement training, a lot of it that is required by their state to, to, um, to maintain those training levels. So NIMS has to be squeezed in within routine training. And that means then that other elected training that they may feel is important for their locality gets squeezed out, that, they are, that, that there's um, a trade-off that they have to do. As one interviewee noted, by the time they had certified everybody in their department, they are already behind in the next training cycle for NIMS. So I'd like to just give you a sense, to summarize for you how kind of when we think about um, police's, policing's focus in criminal intelligence, counterterrorism has evolved over time, is that pre-9-11 you had it focused on very specific activities, whether it be white collar crime, gang, activity, um, narcotics, drug trafficking. Post 9-11, you see that they're maintaining this criminal intelligence focus, but they're also now trying to understand what does it mean for law enforcement to be trained in 
counterterrorism. Ten years out, as we approach the anniversary of 9-11, what we see is that counterterrorism function has continued to evolve, but importantly, it's also evolved to thinking about it in an all-crimes, all-hazards um, focus. So with counterterrorism, the terrorist set being part of that continuum. The organizational units that we see for law enforcement follow a similar trajectory. Pre-9-11, we had, for example, specialized gang units, for example, or, or um, white-collar crime units. Importantly, right after 9-11, in order to create these Homeland Security Bureaus, counterterrorism units, recall that I said that, that funding does not allow them to hire police personnel for these specific types of activities. So what they had to do is they're taking existing units, so for example, it might be a narcotics unit, and they're morphing it into a counterterrorism unit. Or else they're taking individuals from various parts of the department and then, using, and then bringing them in to staff a particular Homeland Security Bureau or counterterrorism unit. So it raises the question of what activities then are being foregone, or what are departments having to weigh in terms of where they're going to put less emphasis in terms of different types of crime versus in order to be able to um, staff these positions. Homeland Security funding um, is an important part and source of funding for what we call fusion centers. Fusion centers um, in particular encourage an all crimes, all hazards approach. That's been, I think, an important advance because it's not just simply about um, thinking about devoting resources to thinking about the terrorist threat and, and incidents that are very rare, but also recognizing that in the course of looking at the range of information available, you're going to be coming across other types of crime. You're going to be identifying such things as money laundering activities, narcotics, even cross-jurisdictional crime. So it's really trying to think about, about it as a, as a continuum of the type of crime that, that law enforcement must deal with. So I've talked, I keep mentioning fusion centers, and now I'm going to tell you a little bit about, more about them and some of the both the benefits, but also some of the challenges associated with them. The picture here is the Miami-Dade's fusion center. Fusion centers are an important advancement. They, they serve as a primary focal point for state and local law enforcement in terms of thinking about receiving, analyzing, and disseminating information about the terrorist threat. Um, they were primarily established to meet state and local needs. In the United States, there's about 52 primary fusion centers, that is, state-level fusion centers, including D.C. and Puerto Rico. But there's also 21 major area fusion centers, that is, fusion centers that are that for large urban areas that are designed to really help focus on, for, for example, these tier one cities, cities that have a high threat of terrorism, thinking about what is the threat in these areas. A good example is the Boston Regional Intelligence Center. Another one is Los Angeles' Joint Regional Intelligence Center. But its goal really is to bring together agencies, largely law enforcement, but other folks, you know, fire departments, other entities, other responders also participate in fusion centers that where they agree to provide resources, manpower, expertise, and share information about the terrorism threat. The goal is to maximize their ability collectively to detect, investigate, and respond to these types of incidents. 
Participants in fusion centers include both law enforcement agencies within a region, but also fire departments, in some cases non-traditional partners like public health departments, but also FBI agents will participate in these fusion centers. The Department of Homeland Security has 64 intelligence officers and nine regional directors in the field that are coordinating and co-locating these fusion centers. Other departments like the Department of Defense may also assign personnel to these fusion centers. In our analysis, we, we identified key, five key trends in this area associated with fusion centers, but I wanted to focus today on two that are, I, we feel are especially salient. That is organizing virtually as well as the move towards regionalization and what that means for law enforcement. But I mean organizing virtually instead of simply having each police department, for example, send an officer, physically locate that officer in a, one, one, in a center with other representatives from other police departments. What they're doing is, is they realize that, that they can leverage technology, whether it be telephone conference calls, whether it be um, being able to access information online, that sort of thing. That allows them to bring in more into the fusion center network, smaller police departments, departments that have much fewer personnel. It's very difficult for them to, to dedicate an individual to this area. An important benefit has been it allows for better access to information about the threat, but also about crime in general. For example, if you're a local police department, you know, in, in a township near the Boston Police Department, you now have the capability of accessing the Boston Police Department's crime database. Um, I mentioned the All Crimes, All Hazards focus has reaped a number of benefits. Some of the examples that we heard about were cross-jurisdictional crime. It allows police officers to start connecting the dots in this area. From an organizational standpoint, it also makes information sharing less personnel dependent. It's illustrated well by a quote from an officer. He, he was in a small police department in the Boston area. And he said that before the Boston Fusion Center was in existence, he would, every couple of weeks, get in his car, drive around to the other police departments in the area, meet with his counterparts, and then and share information. Now he's participating twice daily in the conference calls of this fusion center. But orga organizing virtually also has some challenges. A key one is that the size of these information sharing networks have greatly grown. Um, a good example is in Los Angeles, in Southern California. The Los Angeles Sheriff's Department was responsible for their um, information sharing network that after 9-11 was the size of police departments within two major counties. That now has grown to six counties. Um, much of the administrative burden of maintaining and using these networks has fallen on local law enforcement. It's also difficult to ensure the participation of these smaller agencies that are surrounding. They tend to become passive receivers of information, less so is it a two-way exchange of information, and it runs the risk of you no longer being able to, to really put as much emphasis as you'd like on the actual fusion process that is the actual analysis of this information. So, so let's turn now to thinking about 
um, what trends in funding to staff to um, to cover the cost of law enforcement's focus in this area, as well as thinking about how do we assess the opportunity costs for law enforcement. An important trend in Homeland Security funding is regionalization. And by that I mean that um, no longer are you thinking about funding individual departments, individual groups of agencies, but rather you're now thinking about how do you ensure the preparedness for a large urban area, for a region, and so you're really dealing with multiple actors, stakeholders within a region. Homeland Security funding flows from, this, from the federal government to the state to the region to the city or county then to the department. So what that means is, is that you now have a lot less flexibility in how these funds are used. There's, there's those, the grant mechanisms tend to be very prescriptive about what they want you to achieve in each year. Um, it also means that law enforcement is competing with multiple agencies now for funding. And this is in a case where you have agencies that are really at the forefront of Homeland Security, counterterrorism, have very specialized uh, capabilities. They find it much harder now to get funding to support and, and maintain and, and to improve on those capabilities. I'm hitting again the, the, the issue of funding does not support the hiring of police personnel, but it does put them, that's continually something that they wrestle with, is how do we both justify within a department, but also to our city council, that we are having police work in these non-patrol activities. I wanted to give you a sense of some of the grants that uh, fund law enforcement's Homeland Security Counterterrorism Preparedness um, funding. At the federal level, we have the Homeland Security Grant Program. There's five major sub-programs within that. Two of them, particularly important to law enforcement, is the State Homeland Security Program and the Urban Area Security Initiative. There also was a Law Enforcement Terrorism Prevention Program, but that no longer is in existence. Other Homeland Security programs that law enforcement participates in to a much lesser degree is, are things like HIDA and the Port Security Grant Program. But one of the things that we're finding is that, that the, you now have more fragmentation of the funding that law enforcement needs in order to maintain these capabilities. For example, one administrator noted that before their department could get $10 million out of eight grants for Homeland Security. Now they get $10 million out of 40 grants. So it gives you an idea of how both the complexity of managing these grants, competing for them, maintaining the reporting requirements, and negotiating with multiple levels of review what that is, how that has evolved for law enforcement. I just wanted to show you how Homeland Security grant funding has fluctuated. Here I'm showing you the State Homeland Security Grant Program, SHSP. It supports the implementation of the State Homeland Security Strategy. This is dollars to support planning, training, purchasing equipment for acts of terrorism. This program also, it also supports the implementation of the NIMS, the National Incident Management System. The initial peak following 9-11, remember, was focused on bioterrorism preparedness. That is, it largely went to public health departments, hospitals, and other health entities to ensure their preparedness for bioterrorism attacks. It really wasn't until about three years after 9-11 that we really started to see Homeland Security funding 
start to flow to law enforcement. In 2005, the Law Enforcement um, Terrorism Prevention Program was established. It lasted only until 2007. That was the, the one program that was specifically uh, focused on law enforcement's needs. It subsequently was rolled into UASI and the State Homeland Security Grant Program with a requirement that they dedicate approximately 25% of their funding to law enforcement preparedness. The Urban Area Security Initiative is an important source of funding for fusion centers. If you look at the trends over time, what we see is from fiscal year 2010 to fiscal 2011, for the Urban Area Security Initiative, major source of funding for fusion centers, we see, we're, we've seen a 20% decrease in funding. For the State Homeland Security Grant Program, there's a 37% drop. So, so clearly, over time, there's been large investments in law enforcement preparedness for counterterrorism and homeland security. And a fair question to ask is, what is this bias? Um, the intent, for example, by the federal government was always that, that states and localities would begin to pick up the cost of these, of, of both these investments as well as, for example, operating and funding infusion centers. However, increasingly localities are asking, what is the return on investment? This is an area that it's very hard to quantify. Um, what you get from having police officers uh, focus on counterterrorism and homeland security. For example, one commander of a counterterrorism unit noted, even within his own department, that he's heard senior leadership say they don't know what counterterrorism is, they don't know what it accomplishes for them, doesn't, they don't know how it helps their department and locality. Another officer commented that their police chief was more likely to get fired for an increase in crime rate versus for homeland security issues. We have a lot of good anecdotal evidence about both the potential costs and benefits. I mentioned the cost of training for the National Incident Management System, NIMS, having to forego other training that would benefit uh, a locality. We have lots of examples, anecdotal examples, of improvements in coordination and information sharing. Typically, how you think about this, you would, you would think about doing a cost-benefit analysis. The problem here is that counterterrorism and homeland security involves very low probability, high-cost events. Because of this, the assumptions are, in the cost-benefit analysis are highly sensitive to what you think the probability is of different types of incidents occurring, and it's going to vary by locality in terms of the types of threat that they face. So what we did is we developed an analytic framework that instead of having a debate center on whether or not you think a major terrorist incident is going to happen you know, in the next five years in your locality, um, to instead think about what are the opportunity costs associated with this investment. We developed a framework that builds upon a RAND's uh, cost of crime calculator. This calculator is a method for allowing department to see how an increase or decrease in police or personnel will affect crime costs. So what we did is we modified this approach to look at the context of if you're shifting police personnel away from traditional crime fighting duties, direct crime fighting duties, to more homeland security, counterterrorism activities, what does that mean in terms of the expected number of crimes and their associated costs? So for example, uh, we estimated the number of new crimes that might be expected from a 1% reduction 
in the uh, department's patrol force. We then calculated the direct cost of the criminal justice system as well as indirect costs to victims. To give you an example, we, we estimated that a 1% shift in police personnel from traditional crime fighting activities to counterterrorism and homeland security nationally would lead to an annual crime cost increase of about 363 million. So to conclude, we know that 10 years after 9-11, counterterrorism and homeland security has become a very important part of policing. It's, um, there's been significant investments in this area, a number of good examples of the benefits in this economic environment, though a lot of everyday pressure to think about do we still need to dedicate police personnel in this area. So what does this mean for Congress? I think there's a good case to be made for considering how to um, develop a little bit more flexibility in Homeland Security grant programs to allow particularly these large departments that are at the cutting edge of Homeland Security to have the flexibility they need to con in order to maintain that, those capabilities. Um, I talked about the huge investment it takes to develop the expertise in this area. There's a need to think about is, are there opportunities to allow some of that funding to include covering the costs of personnel that are solely dedicated to this area. Clearly, localities are really struggling right now in terms of thinking about where are they going to cut costs. Um, policing is on a chopping block as many other services. So there's a real need for local communities, departments to be able to better quantify what are the opportunity costs associated with investing in this area. And I wanted to also raise that, that fusion centers are an important part of our national strategy. They're, they're recognized as being critical in terms of how they have improved our intelligence capabilities, information sharing capabilities, and that flow of information between federal, state, and local. However, um, they're at risk with uh, the, the need to think about where do we cut funding into federal homeland security grants. At the bottom end, you're think, there you have localities thinking about where can I cut costs in order to balance budgets. Fusion centers really are at that nexus, and it's, and it's becoming more and more of a challenge, both uh, for, in this economic environment, for states and localities to understand what, what that commitment to funding these fusion centers means for them, what do they gain back. Um, that is, those are the key points I hope that you take away from this briefing, and I'm happy to answer any questions you may have. Thank you. This presentation is provided as a public service by the RAND Corporation. Visit www.rand.org to learn more about these issues and to explore RAND's free online library of more than 10,000 policy reports and commentaries.